Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Good morning, peeps, and welcome to Woke AF Daily with me, your girl, Danielle Moody, pre-recording from the Brooklyn Bunker. Folks, I hope that you are enjoying this week in March of our Women Power Week. Uh, I wanted to bring you conversations and books and inspiration uh, and important news uh, from a woman's perspective, as you get that usually with me. But I wanted to make a conscious effort uh, over the course of this week while I'm away on vacation to bring you some really thoughtful conversations, uh, particularly this one. I'm so happy to welcome to the show uh, for the very first time Deepa Purushathman, who is the author of The First, The Few, and The Only, How Women of Color Can Redefine Power in Corporate America. Deepa and I will get into a conversation that I think is, you know, a similar story that many of us who have worked, whether you've worked in the nonprofit sphere, if you've worked for government, if you have worked in corporate America, have experienced the emotional and physical fatigue of microaggressions uh, that don't seem so micro when you are facing utter and complete uh, burnout. Deepa found herself as one of the very few uh, and only a woman of color in the C-suite in her company. And Deepa was working, you know, ridiculous hours, traveling a majority of the year, living outside of a suitcase. And all of a sudden, she started to feel incredibly unwell. She'll tell the story about how she, when she was off from work, she was sleeping 14-hour days. That the exhaustion, the 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 way that she was looking and feeling she would go through 15 doctors before she would get a diagnosis that was um that had gone overlooked 
Because we tell women that when you hit a certain age, oh, it's your 40s. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. We don't take into consideration the physical effects of burnout, the physical effects of what it is like spending your entire professional life contorting yourself into a pretzel to fit in to other people's expectations and ideas about how you should show up and how you should present. There is a unspoken of weight that women of color, and I would argue LGBTQ women, women from most marginalized communities face, right? That we don't talk about. We're just told to kind of keep your head down and keep working um, and not having to deal with the job that you were hired to deal with. And then all of the misogyny, the racism, right? Uh, the homophobia in some cases, the transphobia on top of that. And I'll tell you this, um, tell you a little bit of a story before I introduce uh, the conversation with Deepa. So I, you know, had been working and have always worked in political and policy spaces. And, you know, by virtue of being raised as one of the only one, right, uh, in a white suburb out east on Long Island, I was used to what it was like to be in a classroom and be the only black person, right? Um, that had been my norm. I was used to being on sports team and in spaces where I was the only person, only person of color and recognizing, you know, I put an un, you know, an unneeded burden on myself as a young person, because I decided that I would see myself as an ambassador, right? That I may be the only black person that some of these families, some of these kids ever come into contact with. So I felt the pressure of having to be this model black person so that somehow in my mind, I would stop them later down the road from being racist. Think about that. Think about being in middle school and recognizing that you are the sole black person that many people around you are ever going to come into contact with and that you feel the burden of performing and acting in such a way so that somehow you're going to be able to shift their thinking about other black people because in their mind, they'll say, oh, but I knew Danielle. Folks, the fact that I even thought that, the fact that I even did that for so long is ridiculous. And that's what I talk about when I say the, the burden right? Of having to show up, be perfect, right? Navigate microaggressions of people telling me that, oh, you know, your writing is not that great. And I would say to these white men who would critique me, where was the last place that you were published? Please show me because I'm published in a variety of outlets. So how dare you come to me and say that my writing isn't up to your par? I said, well, it seemed to have worked for Cosmo seemed to have worked for the Center for American Progress. It seemed to have worked for Vogue. I'm confused about why it doesn't work for you, right? Um, so Deepa and I will talk about, you know, a lot of the ways in which, one, we are forced into this minimal view, this, this crouching 
that women do to not really be seen or to just fit in and how that begins to break us down emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And so what does it look like to create a network, right? A community of women that can be of support to one another so that you don't feel alone and you don't feel crazy. Like you are the only one that is navigating the obstacles that are put in place by whiteness and patriarchy, right? And that we are dealing with so many things at one time when other people, white men, just to, just get to show up at work and perform, right? Or white women, okay, they get to show up at work and perform, but then they're still, right, the misogyny. Well, if you're a woman of color, you're dealing with the misogyny, you're dealing with the patriarchy, you're dealing with the racism, you know, it's enough to drive people crazy. So Deepa writes this, um, women of color comprise one of the fastest growing segments in the corporate workforce. Yet often we are underrepresented among the first few or only ones in a department or company. For too long, corporate structures, social zeitgeist, and cultural conditioning have left us feeling exhausted and downtrodden, believing that in order to quote, fit in and be successful, we must hide or change who we are. As a former senior partner at a large global services firm, Deepa Purushathman experienced these feelings of isolation and burnout. She met with hundreds of other women of color across industries and cultural backgrounds, eager to hear about their unique and shared experiences. In doing, so, in doing so, she has come to understand our collective setbacks and the path forward in achieving our goals. Business, she writes, must evolve, and women of color have the potential to lead that transformation. We must begin by pushing back against toxic messaging, including the things we tell ourselves. While embracing the valuable cultural viewpoints and experiences that give us unique perspectives at work. By fully realizing our own strengths, we can build collective power and use it to confront microaggressions, outdated norms, and workplace misconceptions. Create cultures where belonging is never conditional and rework corporations to be genuinely inclusive to all. The first, the few, the only is a roadmap for us to make a profound impact within and outside our organizations while ensuring that our words are heard, our lived experiences are respected, and our contributions are finally valued. Folks, if you are a veteran in the workforce, if you are new to the workforce and a woman of color, this book is for you. If you are a white woman or a white man, but you are in a managing position, a position of power. This book is for you. We can't create cultures and environments that are inclusive without identifying that there is a problem to begin with. And what we are each doing to either perpetuate the wrongs that we see or ignore them so that there is no opportunity for change or expansion. Deepa gives in this book some really thoughtful advice as well as shares her own experience about being the only one and how it almost cost her 
her life, her well-being, her health. And this is why, you know, on Woke AF, I try and talk about wellness, you know, as often as I can. And it's for reasons like this, that we are all managing and dealing with so much. And on top of that, if you are a person of color, if you are a queer person or a person from a marginalized community, you are dealing with the fuckery on top of fuckery every day, right? It is exhausting. And you need to build up your reserves, right? As you go to battle each and every day. It's why I meditate, go walking, build community with friends that are like-minded and caring, that can hold some of the pains and strains that I deal with on a regular basis. We all need that. I can remember, you know, a, a friend many, many years ago had said, to deal with this world, you need a team, right? If you can afford to hire that team in, in terms of a personal trainer, a, a, a meditation guru, a, you know, a body work person, a therapist, um, you need a team getting through this life, particularly now ain't fucking easy. So Deepa offers in her book, folks, a pathway, a guideline for us, and also some wonderful essays that allow us to realize that we are not alone. So coming up next, my conversation with the brilliant Deepa Purushottam. I hope that you enjoy. Folks, I am very excited to welcome to Woke AF Daily for the very first time author of the book, The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Can Redefine Power in Corporate America. Deepa Pershathaman, thank you so much for joining Woke AF and for writing a book that, you know, mind you, I, I want to say that this may be one of the first uh, to really examine what it is like uh, to be a woman of color in, in corporate America, to be a woman of color in any workplace and professional setting, um, is a space where you're doing multiple jobs. You're doing the one that you were hired for, uh, and then a lot of the behind the scenes work to, you know, unpack white supremacy, to <laughs> unpack, you know, uh, uh, misogyny, to do all of these things as the first. So, Talk to us about how this book came to be uh, and, and what experiences you have had that led you to the to the creation of this book. Yes, thank you. So first of all, thank you for having me. Um, yes, I, I want to believe it's one of the first books, but it's not the first book. There's, a, a, you know, of course, other books out there and I want to give them their due because my sisters also need attention um, for the books that they have done. Like Minda Hartz, right, has been a pioneer yes. in this work. And so I love her work. Um, but yes, it does feel like this is uh, one of the first books that has this many stories, right? So I interviewed over 500 women of color, was very intentional mm. in the term women of color, and we can unpack that as well. Um, but it started because of my own journey. So I was a partner in a very large firm, Deloitte. I was one, our first female mm. partner. I made partner young. Um, and candidly, being a first, I didn't see role models that looked like me. And, and, and there weren't a lot of women of color in front of me, whether it was the company or other clients. And so there was always a struggle of belonging and fitting in. It also kind of came in, in how I grew up. I grew up in a white town. And so navigating spaces and, and schools and universities that, you know, where I didn't feel like I belonged and I was, I was making it up as I go. We also didn't talk about race at home, which might be different from some of your listeners, like being a 
of Indian descent. My parents were immigrants to this country. So there was a lot of, if you just work hard, it'll all work itself out. And I would navigate spaces and know that's not the case, but there was no place to have that conversation. And so as I was struggling, uh, I struggled for three years on whether or not I wanted to quit my job or leave my job. I was in a very Mm. senior role, highly visible, all eyes on me, you know, at the height of my career. And it was a combination of questions around purpose and then getting really sick uh, in all candor, like burnt out, probably traumatized that we can unpack as well. And I started meeting with women of color. Very long answer, very short. I started meeting with women of color. It started one-on-one, then two-person, then three-person. And then with my now business partner, we ended up doing 12 dinners across the country where we gathered 20 or 30 women of color each, all senior women, because I was looking for at a senior level, where does one go? We would get in these rooms, I thought, for one or two hours. Six or seven hours later, we were still in the rooms talking about the microaggressions, the racism, the being a first, what it's like to the extra work. I call it the job and the job. All of these topics, and none of these women had talked about it before because we all were navigating on our own. So I knew right then it was special. I knew right then that there was something to be talked about. It was freeing to me. It was freeing to them. And so that became the basis for the book and also for the company that we started that's also about safe space for women of color. Deepa, that's amazing. And and I and I want to go back to a point that you made about getting sick mm-hmm. um and 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 feeling this burnout, you know, in coming from your your Indian family who basically said, you know, just work hard, right? Just work hard, put your head down um, and and get the job done. They must have been very excited about the fact that you were so young, right? And being promoted in this major, you know, corporation that is is very well known. Um, But did you, how did you experience your burnout? Were you feeling like you weren't up to the task? Because your parents had said, just work hard and you were working hard. How did you experience um, your burnout? Yeah, it was, um, I think that was some of it, or there was always a high lesson or a big lesson in my family of just work harder and do more and performance and productivity were super important, which is, I think now I I understand better is a lot of white supremacy indoctrination, do more and all of that, but it's very immigrant, you know, very strong immigrant families. And I did talk to a lot of different groups just, just so to share with you, what was interesting is some of the black women had a different perspective, a small segment, Um, but with everyone else, there was a common thread of just work harder and it'll be okay. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm peanut buttering a little bit of, you know, the conversations over 500, but there were some patterns amongst types of women and what, where they came from, how many, you know, how many decades they were here if they were immigrants. So there, there is some, there is some grouping. Um, but yes, I do think that was it. I also, um, you know, I was rewarded for sacrificing my health. I mean, I am now mm. at a point in my life where I can tell you, I know that success has to come with health. Like, I don't think those two ideas are different, but when I was in corporate America, and I think this is true for a lot of workplaces, I got more money. I got raises. I got promotions as a result of sacrificing my personal life and probably sacrificing my health. And so it's a big question for me. I mean, Ultimately, for me, it became um, unquestionable. So I was at my 15th doctor. I had you know, all kinds of growing symptoms over two or three years. I just sold the biggest project of my career. I'd just gotten married. I tell the story in the book. And all of these things were coming to a head. And I was getting progressively and progressively sicker and sicker. And so I'm sitting in the doctor's office, and she's looking at me. And she, she has run hundreds of tests. And she's agreeing, there's something wrong with me, but we can't find the smoking gun, as I call it. Um, and she said, we can run more tests, or I can just tell you what you already know. You're 
your job is killing you and the stress, the travel. So you have to remember my job was living out of a suitcase. I did three cities a week sometimes. So I wow. didn't sleep in my own bed. I didn't eat well, right? I I was very much performance oriented. And so she asked me three life-changing questions and I write about this. She said, what would you do if you didn't do a big job like this? Do you mm-hmm. feel, number two, do you feel like you have to do a j- big job like this to feel, you know, to feel powerful? And mm-hmm. three, um, don't you see value in just being you? And I just felt seen through. I literally, like, moment of reckoning. And so I left that doctor and really had to ask myself some hard questions. I ended up, you know, my 15th doctor with a, a 16th doctor with a, with a Lyme, a late stage Lyme diagnosis that had probably been triggered during the stress and the symptoms were pretty strong, pretty severe. I had, I had pins and needles. I ended up on bed rest for almost eight months. So it was a pretty severe case. Oh my but God, I had been Deepa. pushing through that. Yeah. And I will share one last thing and then happy to answer more questions. But what's yeah. interesting is the number one hands down most glaring thing from these 500 women that I interviewed is that almost all of them, so two and three women I interviewed was sick, similar to me. So some sort of undiagnosable illness. So not like cancer or some sort of clear, you know, um, you can see a doctor and and, and hopefully get a treatment sort of illness, but more skin rashes, stomach pains, heart palpitations, fertility issues, um, you know, rashes, all, all kinds of these, what we call mysterious illnesses or disorders that I've now spoken to enough doctors. I think it's trauma and stress related, and we've never really had conversation and space for that. What happens when you're not seen and heard in in structures, right? And what happens when you constantly edit yourself and let go of parts of yourself? Well, this is what happens. I believe it shows up in your body if you don't listen. And I'm a great example of what happened. You know, it's so interesting because also, you know, what we know to be true about uh, Western medicine in, in, in particular is that we don't really interrogate the differences between men and women. We don't interrogate uh, the differences between people of color. Uh, I, I remember going into a doctor, and I've told this story on Woke AF before, where I'd gone in for a regular physical uh, many moons ago I was when I was uh, living in Washington, D.C., gone in for a regular physical, comes back, my white blood cell count is low. And my general practitioner was uh, was alarmed by the numbers. Well, I head into a hematologist to come and find out that, yes, your white blood cell count is low, but if we're comparing you to white European to white Europeans, then yes, it seems low. Yes. If I'm comparing you yes. to other black people, yes. um, it is normal. And so here is what you need to understand about how you are being measured. Right. And he, and he, you know, a great doctor. And he was just like, I'm going to monitor you for the next three months just to make sure that, you know, all is actually well, but I just want to start off this conversation with saying just how we are measuring you is not even right. You know, so then for women, particularly women of color to go into a, 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 the, the medical industrial complex where we are, our voices are ignored, right? Um, our, our feelings and, and, and our physical feelings are, are oftentimes ignored. How do you, how did you even get, I mean, I guess, you know, was it that you had a, another woman doctor or like how how were yeah. you able and it took 15 right yeah. it, took 15 it took 15 to go through no, let me to let get, me be yeah. super clear yeah. my story is not dissimilar than and I it's I think most acute as you're saying for black women that that's also true in the health in the health space right um I was told so many times you turn 40 this is what happens when you turn 40 and I'm like this is not 40 I have mono I have you know I had shingles I had all the literally everything every two weeks I was in some sort of 
you know, spin on being sick. I don't, I, I knew it wasn't normal. So many white male doctors told me it was just 40 and I just wouldn't take that for an answer. Mm. I honestly felt like I was unplugged is what I call it or dying. Like my battery was not recharging. I got lucky. So I left that doctor's office that I mentioned to you where she asked me those three questions and I went back to my hotel room and I started crying and I called a senior manager on my project. That senior manager happened to have a dad who was a rheumatologist and she said, my dad is like Dr. House. I believe you have Lyme disease. I'm just telling you from all the things he talks about. He's got like a six-month waiting list, but I'm going to make a call. I want you to go see him. Just please go see him. I'm pretty sure this is what it is. And she made the call, and he's the one that diagnosed it and got me on a path to wellness. So it was – I believe in interventions, like the universe intervening. And so I listened. Yeah, I was desperate. I was desperate enough to – she had offered once or twice before, and I was like, it's – you know, I – I, I don't want to see another doctor. I'm sure it's not that. He sounded a little bit scary to me. Um, and at that point, I just said, I'll take whatever help the universe is bringing me because I can't I can't solve this anymore. I, I honestly couldn't keep going. I had just, I'd been maybe two years married at that point. And I remember saying to my husband, I'm sorry that we got married. Like, I, this is not the life you signed up for. I had no energy. I would just sit on the couch when I got home on the weekends and sleep for like 14 hours a day because I was trying to catch up on my sleep. So it was a really severe situation, but I think a lot of us ignore how we're feeling. And I think had I maybe had more tools earlier, I would have insisted, you know, as the symptoms started mounting like that, none of this is normal. Let's talk about it. Let's understand that. You know, and it's, it's very true. And I think, you know, one of, one of the things that, you know, I, I believe that the pandemic has uh, illuminated um, is a conversation about how we work. Uh, and rest. And what we saw, right, uh, in 2020 were over 2 million women being forced out of the workforce because they're now homeschooling, right? They were now homeschooling young children and trying also to hold on to a job. And so we got to see, you know, the reality, the lived reality and experience of what it's like to be a working working mother and how by virtue of not creating space and not really understanding or caring about how your employees are actually working, these women had to had to leave the workforce in these dinners that you that you began that would turn into your book what were some of the common themes uh that came out that allowed you to see oh this is a bigger problem like if i'm feeling this way i know that other people must be feeling this way but now you're going through these series of dinners what are some of the things that were illuminated for you I think for me, and this is true for a lot of us, so again, these women were high performing, right? Like VP level and above women. I think most of us had been navigating on our own. We were so busy, so heads down, getting to the seat. And then once we were in the seat, right, just trying to make a go of it, that so many of us were alienated and just alone in our spaces. We were literally the first few, the only, the name, the title of the book, like the only woman of color, right, in a, in a department, definitely the only one in the C-suite. So there's just this sense of alienation, this sense of conforming, giving up so many parts of yourself just to fit into these spaces. There was a sense these women had shared that they would, once they got to the seat, they thought they would do it their way. They would get to the seat and there was even more pressure to behave and perform, like, right? And to to toe the line at, at that senior level. So that was surprising. That was probably the most surprising in those dinners, like how much they had had sacrificed, right? And how powerless they felt. Mm. Like these are some of the most powerful women in America and they were feeling powerless. I think that was surprising to me. I think the other thing, and you brought it up with the healthcare example, 
I think most of us have been taught to believe, and again, I do think this is a little bit different based on on who you are and, and how you've grown up and where, but I think most of us were taught to believe that corporate America is a meritocracy, that if you, you know, show up, yep. like, you know, mm-hmm. you work hard, it'll be okay. And I think what you're saying with your healthcare example, and what I'm saying with corporate America, very loud and proud now is corporate America is not a meritocracy. The healthcare system is not a meritocracy. It shows up differently for different groups. And we need to talk about that if we're going to change it, right? So I think there was like a cracking open of this is not just me. This is happening to 20 other women in, you know, in in 12 cities. There is something different here. And why, why were we like, why was that the first time we could talk about it? You could just see shoulders dropping in the room, right? You could just see all the things we had been taught, like we had taught, been taught leadership doesn't look like us. And here we mm-hmm. were being leaders. And there's such imposter syndrome, such confusion that comes with that. So I think honestly, it was just a, a, a real awakening that it wasn't me. Like up till that point, I think part of why I got sick was I was thinking this is all me. Like what, what else do I need to do? What do I need to try differently? Why am I getting sick? Why can't I hack it? Well, no, I can't hack it because it's too much, right? And I, 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 I had way gone way past my bounds and I didn't know it. And seeing the other women and seeing what they had gone through, I think allowed me to realize it's not me. You know, but we also, again, we value busy in this, in this country, right? We value saying, oh, how was your day? Oh my God. Uh, My calendar is overloaded. And you know, I, I haven't had a moment to have lunch. And that is like, to your earlier point, that is something that is celebrated. That is rewarded. How much of yourself can you squeeze out? How much can I extract? Right. And what little can you survive and exist on? right? With what is essentially with what is left. And I think that oftentimes too, you know, how do you feel like we are having conversations about burnout? You know, there's a lot of books and things like that about burnout, but what do you think that they are missing, particularly as it pertains to, to, to women of color? Yeah. I think the big conversation, and and this is probably not going to be a grand awakening to your audience, right? But I think it is in a lot of other circles is I think what's happening is a lot of us are finally having the conversation about race at work in a different way. Again, up till now, most of us have been taught, especially in corporates, right? That don't talk about it. You don't talk about it. And it's a neutral, you know, you come in and it's all going to be okay, right? Like that doesn't happen. And if it happens, it's happening once or twice. It's not happening everywhere, right? There, there's maybe a little bit of acceptance that happens in small pockets, but not universally. I think the fact that we're talking about it and that we're allowing ourselves to know it happened to us. I interviewed a lot of psychologists and what they're saying is when you allow yourself to feel the racism, when you allow yourself to acknowledge the racism, you start to feel it in your body. And that's what's happening Mm. to a lot of us. So until we process it, until we let it go, until we do somatic healing or all the other things that these doctors talked about, you're going to hold it in your body. And I think that's what's also happening is these last couple of years, there's a difference from denial to acknowledgement. And acknowledgement is almost harder until you process it because now we're we're willing to say, yes, it's actually unfair. Yes, it's actually racist. Yes, it's actually all the things we were told to, to ignore were actually true. And that is hard. So I think we're just in a different part of the acknowledgement process, to be honest. With you. you know, it's so interesting. My my um, my mother is a yogi and owns a yoga studio on Long Island uh, in New York. And one of the things that she has always told me, particularly about my work as it's centered around politics and justice, right, is that I need to be very mindful about how I take on these issues because I take them on on a cellular level. Yes, exactly. And she would say, she's like, you are taking this on on a, a cellular level and it is going to attack you like a, like a virus, 
right? It is going to nab into your system and this is what it's going to drain you. And if you're going to do this work, you need to put, what are the, what are the mechanisms that you were putting in place in order to keep yourself well, in order to almost, you know, be present, but be able to disconnect. So what are some of the things that you have learned Deepa and, and, and that you offer to, to women that are on this ladder or in this jungle gym, trying to, you know, make it to the next level and make it to the next space and doing so by, but keeping their entirety of their self intact. Yeah. I think, I think the big shift that I've made is, is almost some of what your mom is suggesting to you. Like I think getting sick. So first of all, I do think getting Lyme disease for me was a gift because it made me slow down. It made me really look at my life differently. It made me ask different questions. It's almost been a guide to reinvent my life. Um, I also met a lot of spiritual practitioners because Lyme disease is so un- misunderstood and there's not a lot of like, take this medicine and it gets fixed. So I've just, I've sought out very alternative healers and a lot of things I would have never done before. So it's been in that way, very awakening. Um, what I have found is that most of us come to a, an understanding that the system doesn't work for us when we encounter a big life situation, right? So, you know, something happens to us personally or we bounce against the system not working and then it makes us really question who we are. That's a moment where you can do a lot of work, whether it's journaling, writing, walking in nature, getting quiet with yourself. But the way I talk about it in the book is you need to do the power, you need to find the power of me and then the power of we. So you need to kind of figure out for yourself We've taken in a lot of messages that don't work for us as black and brown women, right? We're not Mm -hmm. powerful. We're not this. We're not that. I Mm -hmm. think, you know, even if we are trying to be conscious of it, we have to go through a process where we let go of the stuff that doesn't work for us. I call that shedding. Shed messages that don't work for you. And it is active reprogramming. You know, Ra, my business partner calls it, you have to, you know, almost take out the indoctrination that is there and part of everything we do and let that go. Once you do that, the second part of it is you have to find we, like so the power of we. So I think those dinners were the power of we because it is hard to change structures. It's hard to do the work that you do if you don't have community. You can't do it by yourself because it it's soul depleting, right? And so mm-hmm. it is really figuring out, I think what I tell women is you have to figure out for yourself. What do you believe? What do you want your life to be? What is important to you? What are your boundaries? Because corporate America asks you to conform on a daily basis. So what are you not willing to give up Draw your boundaries. That's the me work. And then find your sisters because this is going to be hard. And when the things happen, you need each other on group chat or speed dial or whatever it is, because we tend to hold on those negative comments, all that negative four times as long as the positive. That's what the research and the science shows us. So we need ways that we can let that go. And so I think those are the first steps. I mean, there's a lot. It's a big question to answer in two or three. But for me, it was really finding a lot of alternative healing. It was writing. It was taking the eight months off. It was realizing my identity was not my work and that I'm a human outside of what I do, which were our, our big things to let go of when you've sacrificed so much to rise in structures like that. I was rewarded. I was I was known by my first name in a hundred thousand person organization. Like there's a lot of, you know, I don't want to call it celebrity, but almost like cachet or or identity that comes with that. And I had to realize like that was not my life and I could let it go and still be me. But I had to figure out who me was for, for a minute. You know, right now, um, all eyes are going to be on the Supreme Court nominee. Mm, yes. Uh, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson is going to, you know, God willing, be the first black woman to be on the Supreme Court. There are already attacks which we knew were coming about her qualifications um, and and whether or not she's going to be up to the task because of this you know, the assumption is by virtue of being a black woman, apparently you're not, um, you know, what, what, 
What are some of the things that you think, you know, <laughs> will carry into this space that we will actually see by virtue of watching her confirmation that, you know, you have understood in the research that you all have done in the reports that have come up? What, what do you see as some parallels that we may see play out uh, in mainstream media? Yeah, I love that question only because I've actually really thought about it a lot. Um, I think that the there's a story throughout the book, right? That these trailblazers, what I, who I call trailblazers, we don't talk about the shadow side of trailblazing. We don't talk about all the struggle, all the strife, all the extra, all the questions that it brings, right? I tell a story where I open in the book of how I made partner and one of my best friends asked me, you know, or, or made a comment that I was a twofer, that I checked two boxes and that's why I was promoted quickly. And it was devastating. There's like a lot of that that comes with the role. I think what's different and what I'm hopeful with, with, um, with the new justice being confirmed is that she sets a new example because she is not, you know, her job can't, and I say this and I, I believe this to be true, but you can correct me. She can't be taken out of that job, right? So she can be in full voice. She can do her. Like part of what I'm saying is I think most of us are not able to do ourselves yep. fully in these structures. And so, I, I mean, even, even Vice President Harris, I don't think is fully able to do her because she's, nope. you know, up for the next role. And so I think it'll be one of the few examples where she is not worried about how she comes across. She can completely show up, you know, God willing, and how she wants to show up. And I think that is going to be game changing for all the rest of us. It gives me chills just to talk about it because I think she can literally be in full voice. And I unfortunately think we have very few examples of women of color who sit in the seat in full voice because there's such backlash and ramifications and retribution when, when we when we do. And so I think that's what's different and what's special and what I'm hopeful about. Um, but I also, you know, I've had this conversation. I was just having it with a journalist um, who was asking me this question. How do we make sure that she's not tokenized? How do we make sure that she mm -hmm. is able to be mm -hmm. her full self and that she gets the full support? And that's where I think we as a community also have to support her, right? And, and encourage her. And she is going to have a lot of rocks thrown at her. And I, I think we just have to be there in whatever ways we can, even if it's from afar, just giving her as much support as possible. Because I think those are real, real questions that I don't think, you know, a white male justice would have to go through right now, right? In the same sorts of ways. It's a completely different experience that I don't think people appreciate. And it takes its toll. So I hope she has her, her, her circle of sisters, right? That she can call upon. I, and I, I pray that she does. Um, last question for you is that Coming out of this experience, not only did you write uh, the first, the few, and the only, but you also started uh, a company yeah. uh, in formation around it. Can you tell us a little bit about that and for folks who are interested in, yeah. in learning more? Absolutely. So information is a community. It's a safe, brave, and new space for professional women of color. And we do a lot of what we did in the dinners, but we do it virtually, uh, at least at this point online. And so we hold safe space. We have conversations around advancement. We talk about what it's like to feel like a token. I mean, all the things we had an amazing conversation a few months ago about what it meant to be a woman of color, because some of my Latinx sisters raised that they don't necessarily, the term woman of color, you know, felt uncomfortable to them, you know, because they're white passing. And so we, as a group of 200 women of color, had a conversation about what does it mean? What are we, what are our shared experiences and what's different? I don't know other spaces where we have conversations like that. So I think it's really powerful for us to 
find our voice, find what our commonalities are, find what our challenges are. We also found that 25% of our women, just a quarter into our existence, we're pretty new, we're a year, a year and a, a few months mm-hmm. old, a quarter in, 25% of our women asked for bigger jobs, more pay, or left the roles they were in, they said, as a result of just being in community because they saw yes. other women, right, asking for more. So it's not anything magical that Raw and I are teaching, but once you see me ask for more, you're like, I'm going to ask for more, and then the next person's going to ask for more. So I think we're, we're being each other's um, – um, guides on what our boundaries are and what our worth is and what it's like to leave spaces that don't don't want to see us and don't want to make space for us. I think that's different. I also think as women of color, we have such amazing lived experiences, right, that, that, that don't get valued in the workplace, right? Those have lived experiences get downplayed. We look at P&L, we looked at global experiences, we look at this like checklist of things that are important. And as women of color, we have such lived experiences. So we're coming together and talking about those things. So that's what the community is about, you know, how we have power, how we're special, how, you know, in 2050, when when the world continues to be diverse, like I actually think we have I call them superpowers and in ways that we can lead that I think that I think corporate and other industries absolutely need, other sectors need. Um, and so we, I feel like we're the voice of the future in that sort of way. Um, yes, we're always looking for members. We're always looking for new people. So you can find all that information on my web, website. So Deepa Peru, P-U-R-U.com. And there's information about the book, but also information about information, the company and how you sign up. And our next big initiative that we are just in the process of announcing. So I'll, I'll, I'll just kind of sit, flag it here is we're about to place 100 women of color on boards. And so that's our next initiative, but not just place Fantastic. them in a traditional sort of way. We actually want to change the criteria that we use to place women of color. So we're doing that with Richard Branson's B team. And so that'll be a big announcement that comes out in the next few weeks. Well, I I can't tell you. It has been a pleasure. I'm so happy that uh, we were able to make this happen. Folks, the name of the book is The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Can Redefine Power in Corporate America. Deepa, thank you so much for making the time to join Woke App, and we hope to have you back again. Thank you so much for having me and having these conversations. That is it for me today, folks, on Woke AF. As always, power to the people and to all the people power. Get woke and stay woke as fuck. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. 
visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.